if you will, turn in your Bibles to the 11th chapter, the book of Zechariah, as we continue our study through the Word. So you remember that the nation of Israel had been taken into captivity and they were there in Babylon and, and Cyrus, when Cyrus captures Babylon, he gives permission for the nation to go back. And, and so about 50,000 head back and they start to rebuild, but that's a small number out of all that were there in Babylon. And, and they get the temple and the foundation set, they get the altar built and sacrifices are going on but then the work really stalls and for 14 years really nothing more takes place and God raises up a Haggai and it's the first prophet that now has spoken to the nation ever since they were taken into captivity and how exciting that had to have been that now God's speaking to them again they're back in the land and and Zechariah, now God sends Zechariah two months after Haggai. And so nothing for all those years. And then bam, bam, two prophets uh, right one after another. And, and you remember that Zechariah gives the exhortations. We saw that the beginning chapters were all about those visions that he had in a single night. And, and those visions really, you know, they were messages of encouragement, messages of hope, messages of divine intervention. And, and so it was really exhortive and encouraging to the people. And, and the final half or the last chapters of Zechariah are two visions that God gives to Zechariah. And these two visions are, uh, they, they are visions of, of prophetic of the Messiah. We see that there are these scenes and pictures of the last days of the second coming of Jesus's first coming. We see that he's riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We see these incredible prophecies, specific prophecies that basically are telling the nation of Israel as, you know, they, they had blown it. They, God, they were God's people, but they didn't live in a way that honored God and God took them out of the land, destroyed their, uh, their homeland, put them into captivity, but then he drew them back out again. And the message that he was giving to the nation of Israel was this, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. I still have a plan for you. And, and that is the same message that God has for each and every one of us tonight. God's not done with you yet. I don't care whether you are young or old. I don't care whether you have been crushing it or whether you have fallen away from the Lord and you can't even look at him tonight. I want you to know God's not done with you. God still has a plan, a purpose for you, and all you need to do is surrender, submit, and follow, and he will continue to pick up and use you. And so the people were back in the land, and God wanted them to know that, that he still is going to be God. And the covenant that he has made, the establishment, the sending of the Messiah, the second coming of the Messiah, the way in which this world will turn, and the way in which this world will end will end exactly as God has said it would. And so nothing is going to deter that. Whether you're obedient or disobedient is going to have no bearing on the effect of when Jesus Christ is going to return. Amen? All it's going to do is affect the quality of your own life. Israel's obedience or disobedience is going to have zero effect on the things coming to pass exactly as God said that they were going to come to pass. And there were all of these incredible promises that were unfulfilled when the nation went into captivity. And so the question is, is, is that it? Did we blow it? Is God going to go another path? Is God going to use another nation? And, and the answer was no. God is going to continue to use the nation of Israel. And we're going to see some incredible prophecies. Prophecies are exciting to me and because it was really the, the, the way in which my faith was so grown in, in the formative years of my faith through the study of prophecy, through the recognition and understanding. You know, it's how do I know, you know that I'm worshiping the true and the living God? And, you know, and, and, and the reality is I was talking to somebody else the other day, you know, and I was talking to them, I said to them, if you could show me that Buddhism is true, I would be a Buddhist tomorrow. 
If Buddhist was the, was the truth, if any other religion was the truth, and you could show that to me, I would surrender what I thought was true for what is true because I want to know what's true. That's all I want to know. I just want to know what is true. And, and so God knows that heart. And in the book of Isaiah, he says that you might know that I am the true and the living God and there is no other God. I'll tell you the end from the beginning. And that's how you can know that I am the true and the living God. And so as God starts to put all of these prophecies, hundreds of years and a thousand years ahead of time, minute, detailed, specific, and then as it all unfolds, not some of it, all of it unfolds exactly the way that God said that it would. It is, gives you the absolute certainty, not a wonder, but an absolute certainty that God is who he says that he is, which means that every single thing that is undone is going to be done because God's not going to leave anything unfinished. Amen? And so the book of Zechariah tonight is just exciting because we're going to see two halves of it. We're going to see, Zechariah is going to be talking about the future, but for us that future is the past. It's about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, Zechariah was telling him about the things that still are going to come and God is still going to use, you know, the nation of Israel to send the deliverer, the Messiah, the promised one. And then we're going to see that he is going to leap forwards to the second coming of Christ and to uh, his return and to the end days and so for us we sit looking backwards on the uh, on the first set of prophecies but we look forward you know with coming attractions to to the things that are going to be so let's jump in here and verse 1 chapter 11 Zechariah he says open your doors O Lebanon that fire may devour your cedars and so uh, here we see that this is a you know describes the coming destruction this this talks about the judgment that is going to come from the north through Lebanon now this was fulfilled this is talking about the destruction of the nation by the Roman army and the Roman army came right from the north it came right down through Lebanon and there are the mountain passes between Lebanon and Israel and that's exactly where Titus and Vespasian they marched their armies in first they destroyed Galilee they destroyed the north and then they came all the way to Jerusalem and and then they laid siege to Jerusalem but here you know it says you know open your doors O Lebanon they're the doors into Israel and so this is where the army is going to come and and once they came in Josephus talks about it the historian talks about what happened you know the destruction he says that fire may devour uh, your cedars we see that there, there was as the siege was laid against uh, Jerusalem and, and as things began to grow desperate. What started to happen was that lawlessness started to happen inside of the walls of Jerusalem. It became really every man for himself. And when it devolved into a kind of every man for himself, that was when the, the, the young started to go together into packs. And these gangs of the, uh, of the young and the strong, they just pillaged everybody. It was a survival situation, self-survival. And, and in the end, we see that the Josephus said that more Jews were killed by other Jews than were killed by the Romans at the end when they finally uh, broke through and came in. And so this incredible anarchy, you know, broke out. He says in verse 2, Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar is fallen, and because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. And there is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. And so we see here that the cedar trees kind of illustrate, you know, Lebanon's strength. And, and once the cedars fall, then the lesser trees, the cypress trees and the oaks, they also are going to be destroyed, you know, whale shepherds. Uh, and so in addition to the trees, the, uh, the shepherds and the lions are going to mourn because the judgment that has come on the land, the, uh, because Israel now has rejected the good shepherd. And thus says the Lord, my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their shepherds do not pity them. 
For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. But indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king, and they shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So here we see that you know they're back into the land, and, and, and God is telling them that he is going to continue to use them, but there is a coming judgment that is going to come upon them here for their disobedience, and their future disobedience is the rejection of Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ comes. Now, Jesus Christ was prophesied all the way back in the book of Genesis. You know, the seed of the woman is going Going to come and so throughout the entire you know history of the nation you've been having more and more prophecies more and more pieces and descriptions of the messiah so you know now they're post-exilic meaning they're after the exile they're back into the land but there is going to come the future rejection you know of the messiah and so we see everywhere from the psalms and all the way through the suffering servant and uh, and, and the crucifixion in the psalms and all of these things that were written and so the first first and second coming of the Messiah is something that is Genesis to Revelation. It's, it's all the way through. It's not like, you know, you get all the way to where Jesus is rejected and then you have the prophecies of the second coming. No, all the way through, it shows the first and second comings and the prophecies. So, they're back in the land, and Zechariah here is talking to them, you know, that God still has a future, you know, for the nation of Israel, but there is going to be a cataclysmic judgment that is going to come upon the nation of Israel. Now, this after they've returned and already had the judgment uh, of being exiled into the Babylonian uh, exile. So there is another destruction that is going to come that we see that Zechariah is writing about that is after they are back in the land after the Babylonian destruction and so uh, here he talks about the fact that you know the shepherds means the leaders the leaders that that come in and this is Rome okay these are the the shepherds that are going to roll in and kill and have absolutely no pity there would be you know they they wouldn't care of the slaughter of over a million Jews when they finally do in AD 70 when Titus takes the, the city. And it says, and they shall attack the land and I will not deliver them from uh, their hand. And so I fed the flock for slaughter. In particular, the poor of the flock, I took for myself two staves, one called beauty and the other I called bonds and I, I fed the flock. And so here we see that Zechariah now is kind of acting out this prophecy he you know is feeding a a flock of sheep that represents you know the people of god and as the shepherd zechariah now represents the lord who appointed this flock for a season and for judgment and so zechariah now you know takes two staffs and so he's he, he is now you know demonstrating this one of the staffs name was beauty or grace and the other was bonds you know or unity and so the staff was a common implement for the shepherd and he says and i dismissed the three shepherds in one month and my soul loathed them and their soul also abhorred me and then i said i will not feed you let what is dying die and what is perishing perish let those that are left eat each other's flesh and i took my staff beauty and cut it in two that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the peoples. And so it was broken on that day, and thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. So here we see that, you know, Zechariah talks about these three shepherds, these, you know, shepherds that now were uh, unfaithful shepherds. They were now rejected by the Lord. And so uh, we see here that in one month, we see that there is a judgment upon them. And, and so as we look upon that, who were those three shepherds here that Zechariah is talking about? And th there is no names that go specifically to what Zechariah mentions uh, here. And, and so what commentators believe when he says the three shepherds is, is that Zechariah was talking about the priest, the prophet, and the king. The three offices that were used uh, up through that time in the Old Covenant as the offices of authority and, and that 
that all three now were not following after God and were leading them astray. And so that judgment, their priest, prophet, king would be the three that many commentators believe that that is the reference to that. We see here also he says that you know i will not feed you let what is dying die and so here we see that you know god's hand is a hand of protection and when god removes his hand of protection you know he's not the one that kills he just is removing his protection in the byproduct the consequence of not being protected by God is going to be the the judgment that is going to sweep in. And so here we see, you know, God is saying that I am not going to intervene, that this is a judgment now. He says, let those who are left eat each other's flesh. And here we see, you know, once again, Zechariah is writing these things 500 years before these events take place. And, you know, we see the siege of Jerusalem. And we see that in that siege of Jerusalem, at the end, starvation had gotten so bad that cannibalism was something that actually took place. Josephus, you know, records this in, in his history that he writes. And, and so we see the actual literal fulfillment here of what Zechariah writes. And then he says, you know, and I took my staff, you know, beauty. And, uh, and so here we see that, you know, the staff called beauty represents the covenant that God had made, you know, to send the Messiah. And we see that that now was broken when they rejected the Messiah. They broke now that staff that God had sent. And he says, and then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. And so they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And so here we see that, you know, Zechariah acting out this prophecy. He, he's employing himself as the shepherd over the flock. And now he asks his employer for his wages. And they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And so here we see that, you know, this now, this is an insignificant amount. But what is significant about it is that in the law, it was the lowest amount that you could pay. If an ox gored your servant, then the value that was given was 30 pieces of silver. And so uh, that was the price for a, a slave, for a servant here. And you remember now uh, how it was that, you know, that Judas uh, is the one who takes and sells uh, Jesus for 30 pieces of uh, silver. And so uh, here we see the wages. Now, it's interesting because Matthew's gospel says then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, it's interesting because when you read Matthew's prophecy, it says that Jeremiah it was spoken by Jeremiah. But the prophecy is the direct prophecy that we have in front of us here, which is out of the book of Zechariah. So how do we reconcile this? Well, some people think that it's possibly an error by Matthew, that uh, an early copyist uh, made a mistake. Matthew, you know, wrote uh, Zechariah, but remember that the Bible is copied, 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 copied. We do not have the original copy that Matthew wrote, uh, but that, you know, a copyist, okay, changed, you know, from Jeremiah, you know, from Zechariah to Jeremiah. Some think that, uh, that Jeremiah spoke this prophecy and, and that Zechariah was the one that wrote it down. And so when Matthew says, you know, the, uh, the prophecy that Jeremiah spoke, uh, here we see it's recorded by Zechariah. They say that, you know, it could be that it was Jeremiah's prophecy, but that Zechariah recorded it. Uh, and so uh, here we see that, uh, that, that regardless 
we see that this is the prophecy now of the 30 pieces of uh, silver, whether or not it was Jeremiah who spoke it or whether or not uh, it was a copyist uh, transmission error. Verse 13, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And then I cut in two my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And so here we see again, you know, that Zechariah says that the 30 pieces of silver were thrown into the house of the Lord, but uh, that they were given to the potter. And you'll remember that that is exactly what happened. You will remember how Judas comes and, and goes to the high priests and, and says to them, what will you give me if I can deliver Jesus to you? And you'll remember that they gave him 30 pieces of silver. They agreed to the price of 30 pieces of silver. And so uh, here we see that Zechariah records the exact price 500 years before these events take place. You remember how Judas then leads the soldiers on the, after the Last Supper, leads them uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was with the disciples and he was praying. And you'll remember that he comes up and he betrays Jesus. You remember Jesus says, do you betray me, Judas? With what? with a kiss and so jesus is arrested and you remember that judas then afterwards he he regrets his actions here and he takes the money and he goes and he tries to return it back to the religious leaders and you'll remember that the religious leaders wouldn't receive the money back and uh, and so judas takes the money and he throws it into the temple now uh, the high priests, uh, they looked at the money. They said, we can't put this money back into the treasury. What should we do with this money? And so what they decided to do was to buy some land. Now, the cheapest land that you could buy in that day was land that a potter had been on or had been next to it. Because a potter, every single time he is firing the clay and throwing the clay and all, and when he breaks a pot, he takes and throws it in and you have all these sharp pieces of, of broken pottery that's all over in the, in the field. And so it's the least desirable property that you could have. So they bought it to be a burial place for the poor. And that's what they decided to do with it. But it bought them potter's field, which is exactly what Zechariah had said 500 years earlier was going to happen, that the money would be thrown into the temple. It says, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And then I cut my bonds uh, that I might break uh, the brotherhood. And so uh, we see here that that now the cutting of the other staff, the, the other staff bonds and speaks of the, uh, of the unity now that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And so this was fulfilled when Israel was scattered by the Romans after their rejection of Jesus Christ and they were now dispersed, the diaspersion, the dispersion of the Jews throughout the world. And the Lord said to me, next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. Verse 16, for indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that stand still. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. So uh, now we move uh, forwards. Now we move from the rejection, the cutting off of the staff, beautiful, the breaking of that covenant, the rejection of uh, Christ, the potter's field, money being uh, thrown in. And now we see that we shift to forwards to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so what is going to happen before the second coming? 
coming of Jesus Christ. Well, the Antichrist is now going to rise up. And so he, he is this false shepherd here that Zechariah begins to talk about. Jesus is the good shepherd, and they have rejected the good shepherd. And what will the nation of Israel do? The nation of Israel is going to embrace the false shepherd. And, and here we see now a, a description of this false uh, shepherd uh, that is uh, here. We see that, you know, the false shepherd or the foolish uh, shepherd, we see that he's not going to take care of those who are mm, cut off. He's not going to seek the young. The foolish shepherd is not going to heal the broken. But a wise and a godly shepherd looks for the broken hearts looks for the broken lives. He mends them with God's love and, and with God's word. The foolish shepherd is not going to feed those uh, that are standing, but a good shepherd will faithfully feed the sheep. And the foolish shepherd is just going to bring carnage to the flock. He is going to eat the flesh of the fat. He is going to tear the hooves uh, in pieces. But the good shepherd, he lays his life down for the sheep and so we see the the contrast uh, here and so he says i will raise up a shepherd in in the land we see a uh, a partial illustration of this is, is is when the nation of israel was given the choice between jesus and barabbas Jesus and Barabbas, and who did the nation, you know, pick? They picked Barabbas. But now the fulfillment of this is the Antichrist. The Antichrist that is going to rise up is going to be the fulfillment. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye, and his arm shall completely wither. And his right eye shall be totally blinded. And so here we see that there is going to be the, uh, the false uh, shepherd that is going to rise up. And the nation of Israel is going to believe that this false shepherd, that this Antichrist is in fact uh, the Messiah. We see that the Bible tells us a lot about this man of sin. He is called the son of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist, the beast. He is going to be a world ruler that many believe he is going to rise out of the European community, the revived Roman Empire, if you will. And that uh, he is going to come and make a covenant with the nation of Israel. And in that covenant, uh, he comes as a man of peace. He comes as a diplomat. He comes as a, as a silver-tongued politician who is going to have the solutions to world peace and peace for the nation of Israel, peace for the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict. And, and of course, uh, with that fresh on the table, here we see how the nation of Israel and the world longs for a solution to the Arab-Israeli problem. Right now, certainly inflamed by the uh, attack upon the nation of Israel by Hamas and Israel's response to it, the calls for ceasefires, the call for peace and negotiations, and, and all of these things are taking place. And, uh, and so, uh, part of this covenant though this this peace process is that the nation of israel wants the temple they do not have the temple rebuilt while they are in possession of the land they do not have the temple to come and to worship at and so as a part of that peace process there is going to be this this covenant that is going to uh, allow them to be able to rebuild uh, the temple uh, and so jesus said that when i came in my father's name you did not receive me but another is coming in his own name and him you will uh, receive 
In Israel today, you ask about the Messiah, and, and one of the reasons that they say that, you know, that Jesus is, is not the Messiah is because he claimed to be the Son of God. So, you know, he claimed to be God incarnate. Now, their perception of Messiah is that he's going to be a man. He's going to be a man like Moses. Moses was just a man, but he was empowered by God with the ability to part the sea and to do all of these you know, incredible miracles. And so they see the Messiah as being a fully person that God is going to you know, empower. And so, you know, but if you ask them, if he's just a man, if he's just going to be a person, how can you identify him? And they say that because he will lead us in the building of our temple, that this is what they have come to believe here. They're already preparing for the building of the temple. They have the funds set aside. They have the Levitical priests are already trained and, uh, and all. And so they are just waiting. They're just wanting this opportunity to be able to rebuild and to uh, offer sacrifices. You know, I, I, I say, and it surprises you know people, but they can't argue, is, is that th there is no such thing today on the face of the earth as an Orthodox Jew. You, you hear Orthodox Jew, they're an Orthodox Jew, and you see the Hasidics over there, and they're, they're Orthodox Jews. But to me, in order to be an Orthodox Jew, you have to be able to practice your faith and follow the Word of God. And for them, they are required to offer sacrifices at the temple. And because there is no temple, they cannot offer sacrifices. And, you know, and so instead of the sacrifices, they do good works. And so on the, you know, on the Day of Atonement is their national day of repentance. And so they're normally supposed to go and offer their sacrifices. And, and so instead, what they do is they reflect on their life and, and you know and then they try and do a bunch of good deeds right before you know the day of atonement is the time that you know very often times they're doing a bunch of good deeds to try and you know weight the scales a little bit because why because they can't offer their sacrifices the way the word of god tells them to and so here we see that you know the the antichrist is going to and give them that opportunity to rebuild the temple and, and, and instantly, you know, the world is going to applaud him and the nation is going to follow him. But, you know, after three and a half years, uh, you know, there he is going to enter into that temple. He's going to profane the temple. Sacrifices are going to be reinstituted and, and there is now going to be the profaning of the temple. He's going to declare the, the Antichrist, who, who, who they are going to think is the Messiah, and remember that they believe that he's not God. The, the false Messiah is going to declare that he himself is God and now demand that they bow down and worship him. And, and so we see that this then triggers the great tribulation and the cataclysmic judgment such as the world has never seen nor will ever see ever after. And had those days not been cut short, no flesh would even be able to survive but there is going to be an assassination attempt at some point in time on the antichrist's uh, life and we see that in the book of revelation in chapter 13 it talks about how there is going to be this mortal head wound there there is going to be a, an assassination attempt that should have killed him and yet somehow he is going to live he is going to survive that assassination attempt here zechariah tells us okay that his right eye though is going to be blinded and also his right arm is going to be withered from that assassination uh, attempt and and so uh, here we see that you know that these are the things that are going to uh, take place Place. I believe that the Antichrist is alive today. I believe that the events that are taking place in the world, the nations that are aligning with one another, I, I believe that he absolutely is uh, alive. But 
I love what Pastor Chuck said, you know, when he was alive. He says, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ to come because until the church is taken away, the man of perdition is not going to, uh, is not going to be revealed. Uh, and so the church is, is raptured. The Holy Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit is taken off of the uh, world through the church. And that is going to give the room now for Antichrist to operate and for these events to take place but we are moving right to the stage now of the rapture of the church of the pulling away of the bride and of these things uh, coming to pass now in chapter 12 we see that uh, these are the things now that are being fulfilled right in our lifetime uh, chapter 11 are the things that have already been fulfilled and, and jump fours but now uh, we are going to see the preparation for the second coming of uh, Jesus Christ it says in verse 1 the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel and thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him and so uh, here we see you know that we are pro-life because God is the one that puts the spirit of man inside of us he is the author of life he is the one that gives a life and so uh, we are to honor that life and we are not to take life but we are to defend uh, life he is the god the creator god who forms the spirit of man within him and behold i will make jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples and when they lay siege against judah in jerusalem and it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, and all who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. And so, you know, we see that this is a, a description of where the world is today. We see that all the nations of the earth are are against the, the nation of israel you see the united nations and the votes against the nation of uh, israel and how it is that the the nations around israel you know seek to destroy and have fought you know against the nation of israel and so he says you know i'll make jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to the surrounding peoples to the nations that are around them the arab peoples that surround jerusalem Jerusalem, you know, have this passion for possessing Jerusalem, uh, and, and yet we see that that city, if their their desire to possess that city is not justified by uh, history. You know, Muslims claim that Jerusalem is the third holiest uh, city, but Jerusalem is not even mentioned in the Quran once. Jerusalem is not even mentioned uh, in uh, the Quran. We uh, see the number of times, you know, that uh, that Jerusalem is mentioned in uh, in the Bible. It's mentioned, you know, hundreds over eight hundred times uh, in the Bible. The were you know the mention of uh, Jerusalem, and uh, and we see that the unique city is the only one upon which has bestowed God has bestowed you know his distinctive blessing and protection. He's chosen in Jerusalem as the place where he has put his name forever. The new heavens and the new earth will contain the city of my God, New Jerusalem. And, and there will be the heavenly Jerusalem, but there's not going to be a heavenly Las Vegas or a heavenly New York or a, a, a heavenly Paris. There, there is going to be the, the, the heavenly Jerusalem. But Jerusalem's importance to the Muslim faith came from the belief, you know, that the Dome of the Rock shrine is where two significant things happen. Number one, that is where Abraham intended to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, but it is where they say Muhammad allegedly ascended into heaven. And so it was through this tradition, uh, this is of recent origin though, the, the belief that that location is where Muhammad has ascended into heaven, that, that's relatively new. That came, that was invented by Yasser Arafat's uncle. 
that that's where that belief came from. Yasser Arafat's uh, uncle, uh, who was the past Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, and he promoted this in the 1920s and 30s to arouse the Arab passions against the growing Jewish presence that was now there in Jerusalem. And the, the, the verse in the Quran that describes Muhammad's trip to heaven is Surah 17.1. Glorified be he who carried his servant by night from the inviolable place of worship to the far distant place, which far distant place is the Ali Osk, is Ali Osk, to the far distant place of worship, the neighborhood whereof we have blessed that we might show him our tokens. And so, you know, the Islamic interpretation of the inviolable place of worship, that is Mecca, that's accepted by everybody. But now the far distant trip that he took, you know, uh, is now, uh, he is the one that said that it was to Jerusalem. But that has no substantiation because Jerusalem had never been a place of Islamic uh, worship up until that time, uh, nor would it be for centuries uh, afterwards. And, and so, you know, it's also interesting, you know, because inside the Dome of the Rock, there are hundreds of verses uh, from the Quran, <laughs> but uh, Surah 17.1 isn't even one of the <laughs> verses that, uh, that is inscribed inside of the, uh, of the Dome of the rock. And so uh, here we see that all of the nations, though, are going to come against it. I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. That's what's happening right now. Jerusalem is a problem to the entire world, and the whole world is watching Gaza and Israel and trying to figure out, you know, what should go on. And so uh, it is a burden. And anybody that tries to destroy it, anybody that comes against uh, Israel, we see here uh, that they are the ones that are now going to experience the, the protection of God against his nation and against his people. It was in May 14, 1948, that we saw that, uh, the, that the nation was declared, it was voted in as a nation, and uh, the minute that it was declared a nation, Syria attacked from the north, Jordan attacked from the east, and Egypt attacked from the south. On, on the very day it was voted, they were attacked by the three neighboring nations that all sought to now mm, destroy. The nation of Israel found itself in a struggle for its very survival because the Arabs were determined that the nation of Israel would not exist in that territory that had been assigned to them by the United Nations. But we see that Jordan took the West Bank, Egypt took the Sinai Peninsula, and Syria conquered the Golan Heights, and the Jews held on to just a very small area, very small territory, just enough, you know, to keep them established in, uh, as a nation. In 1967, again, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt decided that they would destroy this new nation, and they all together, as well as Nasser, was armed by Russian uh, aid that Syria and Jordan, they planned to just completely uh, exterminate the Israel. This was back in 1967. They ordered all UN troops out as Nasser announced his, his plan to come in. And so they told the UN troops, get out, because we are coming in and we're going to attack the nation of uh, Israel. And, uh, and so they did, and, and that began what became known as the Six-Day uh, War. And we see that, you know, in, in six days, though, God blessed the nation of Israel with their ability to protect themselves. The Jews took the Sinai Peninsula back from Egypt. They took the West Bank from uh, the Jordan. And for the first time, Jerusalem became a united city after almost 2,000 years. It used to be that when you went to Jerusalem prior to 67, you'd have to go through no man's land. Uh, and you'd have to walk a block from the West Bank area into the Jerusalem quarters. In 1973, again, 
There was a war of extermination. It's called the Yom Kippur War. And again, they attacked Israel. This time, Jordan wasn't involved uh, in it. But Syria uh, attacked a surprise attack on Yom Kippur and, uh, along with uh, Egypt. But once again, the hand of God and many miracles. We see that the, uh, the nation of Israel was uh, spared and they began their counterattack and they took back all of the Sinai Peninsula that was taken by the Egyptians. They uh, went on into Egypt and they trapped the whole third Egyptian army up on the, jo up on the Golan Heights and, uh, and they took the Golan Heights from Syria uh, and, and they moved all the way and pushing to within 17 miles of Damascus and were about to start firing on Damascus when both Egypt and Syria called for a cease fire and that was then you know the end of that war we we see that there is this consistent collection of these nations that come against the nation of israel and and so we see that these events are are going to continue it says in that day that the the nations are going to come against them again says the lord i will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness i will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength, and the Lord of hosts and their God. And so though the nations will come against Jerusalem with absolute fury, God is going to protect her. And we see that, you know, Ezekiel describes the battle in chapters 38 and 39, where these nations are going to come and God is going to intervene and give Israel a complete victory over these opposing forces. And, and so uh, here we see that he declares that he's going to pour out his spirit uh, upon the nation of Israel in that day. I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves and they shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. And so uh, here we see that you know, God is going to deliver Israel not only through his direct actions, but also by the ability of the nation to defend itself uh, supernaturally with supernatural aid. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, verse 7, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So King David is known, you know, I mean, King David, David fought against Goliath and took Goliath out. And so, you know, the picture here is that the weakest person in Jerusalem is going to be a Goliath slayer when God pours his spirit, you know, uh, out upon them. And so uh, we see that, you know, the, the, the leaders are going to be uh, unstoppable. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And so we see a part of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is going to give them that ability to defend Jerusalem with grace and supplication. But God is also now going to bring them to a place of repentance. They're going to look upon me whom they pierced. As Jerusalem is supernaturally defended, there is going to be this, this outpouring of the Spirit, and they are going to turn to Jesus. They're going to turn to the one who was pierced, whose head was pierced with thorns, whose hands and feet were pierced with nails, and whose side was pierced with a spear. And they will look on me whom they pierced. They will realize the reality. 
they will come to the recognition, just as each and every one of us did at that moment when we recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. And we made him our Lord and our Savior. The whole nation is going to come to that simultaneously as the Holy Spirit is an outpour. That will be the greatest altar call in the history of the world. You know, Peter had it with 4,000 there on the first day or 3,000. But now it is going to be the entire nation. And they will then mourn. They will recognize that they were wrong, that all this time they were waiting for the Messiah. But he has been, he came, and so he was rejected. And, and so here we see that, that they are going to turn and look and mourn. And, and there is going to be now the, this preparation that takes place. When, when all of this happens and, and everything, there is then going to be the events that are going to lead up. The, the other nations that are defeated will be angry. They will join forces together with, uh, with Russia. And they will then be joined together by the forces of the Antichrist. And, and we are seeing that then uh, the Antichrist is going to be uh, revealed and ultimately it will lead to the battle of uh, Armageddon. And it is there that Jesus Christ is going to uh, return. Behold, he cometh with the clouds and every eye will see him. And they also which pierced him and all of the kinsmen of the earth shall wail because of him even so. Uh, amen. Verse 11. And in that day there shall be a great morning in Jerusalem, like the morning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And this, this refers to the morning that took place when King Josiah, that's where King Josiah was killed in battle and he was beloved king. And so the sorrow and the wailing uh, that went up and so the whole land uh, will mourn and the land shall mourn, verse 12, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of Shammai by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives uh, by themselves. And so... Here we see that, you know, that there is going to be this incredible turn to the Lord. There will be this repentance that takes place. And, and so we see the incredible stage being set for the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, you know, Jesus said, do you think that I came to, you know, to do away with the word of God? Jesus has said that not one dot nor one tittle of the word of God uh, will transpire, but every single one of it will be absolutely fulfilled exactly as God has said. That is exciting, and that is the reason that we look up for our redemption draws near. Let's pray. Father God, you're so good, and you have demonstrated your faithfulness to your promises and to your promise to protect and to defend the nation of uh, Israel. And Lord, to your coming. We look forward to your return. We look forward to the rapture of the church, to taking your bride to the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb. And even so, Lord, come quickly, Maranatha. But Lord, until then, would you give us boldness to occupy and to live lives uh, now, bold as David in order to bring you glory and honor with our life here upon this earth. All glory and honor to you. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.